millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to Signals to Danger. Welcome to episode 12. All festivities are now suspended for the year and business as usual has returned. As ever, thank you to everybody for listening, for sharing and liking. Please continue. It's lovely to have you here. So do, again, please keep coming back. If you haven't come to hang out with us on social media, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at at Signals to Danger. Or, if you want to, me personally at at Daniel Fox Rail. I would like to give a special thanks to our new patrons, Jenny and Lee. Welcome to the extended Signals team. If you'd like to contribute a few pounds a month to support the podcast yourself for hosting costs, new equipment, other podcasty themed things, please visit patreon.com forward slash signals to danger. The last thing that I would really like to say this week is thank you to everybody in the most wholehearted way. Um, I received an email from my hosting service this week and it told me that my podcast has hit seven and a half thousand downloads. That's phenomenal. I genuinely wrote the first episode on Great Heck for me, for myself, to see if the podcast would work as a concept. And I expected to have maybe 50 downloads over a couple of months. It's a niche area, admittedly. The response I've received has been far in excess of that. And for this, I cannot say thank you enough. To call it humbling would be a bit of a great understatement. There's no RAIB or industry news this time around, so let's get straight into the episode. The light was poor in the bottom of the cutting, but for those climbing from the derailed carriages, the picture quickly became clear. The express train that had been travelling at 70 miles an hour minutes before now lay strewn across all four tracks of the Great Western Main Line and the locomotive lay on its side ahead of the wreckage. The year is 1973, and for this episode, we've come to Ealing. The cause of the crash is still not certain. The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. As ambulances ferried away dozens of injured to nearby hospitals, Surviving sleeping car coaches and two guards vans ploughed across gardens and into two houses more than 20 yards from the track. As news of the disaster first broke, there was no place for politics. A routine everyday commute that ended like this. Many dead, over 50 injured, in one of the worst incidents in London's transport history. This is the scene tonight as salvage teams battle. 
police and fire, were to say that people were killed in 76 inches when a train traveling from London King's Cross to King's Lynn derailed on the wagon to call fire, and a fireman from all over the Manchester area were called to the scene. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. This time out we've gone back to 1973. As ever, let's start with contextualising the year. In January, the Open University awarded its first degrees. The organisation would continue on to revolutionise distance learning over the next 48 years in what seems to have been the perfect preparation for 2020. In yet another crucial moment for music, in my humble opinion, British prog band Pink Floyd released Dark Side of the Moon, the fourth best-selling album of all time, and not without reason. March saw the explosion of several IRA bombs in London, and July saw the release of Live and Let Die, the first Bond film to feature Sir Roger Moore. In a testament to the ongoing troubles in Northern Ireland, a further six IRA bombs were set off in London and Manchester in September, and the year continued to tick onwards until we reached December. At 17.29 on the 19th of December 1973, one Alpha A2 pulled out of the platforms at London's Paddington Station. It wasn't a particularly good start, the service was the 17.18 departure, but at least it was on its way. Alpha A2 was an express passenger service booked to travel out to the capital, along the Great Western Main Line, and then on up to the city of Oxford. In previous episodes, we've come across a few main lines so far, and they tend to have names which describe the way they run. East Coast and West Coast are fairly self-explanatory, and the Midland main line is the one that runs up the Midlands. As such, it would follow that the Great Western main line runs, well, west. The 118-mile line leaves the capital and heads westbound through Reading, Didcot, Swindon, and on to Bristol's Temple Meads. Since 1841, the tracks of the GWML have carried commuters, shoppers, lovers, holidaymakers and businessmen into the capital and back again. The line formed the original route of the Great Western Railway, one of the original railway companies which then became one of the fabled Big Four, covering the southwest of the country. In 1948, when the Big Four were grouped into British Railways, the line was folded into the amalgamated Western region where it remained until the time of this accident. By the 1890s, the line had been quad-tracked as far as Didcot, and that meant that the busy lines out the capital could see two lines in each direction. But unlike some other locations we've looked at, the lines here weren't called fast and slow. They were the up-and-down main and the up-and-down relief. They were laid out paired in twos, with the main lines to the south of the relief, and, of course, up, was headed east to London. One Alpha 82 was, as I said earlier, an express service carrying passengers away from the capital. 
11 carriages carried approximately 650 people out onto the main line. This would have meant that at least 28 people would have needed to stand, as the seated capacity was only 622. But what else could be expected from a midweek rush hour service? At the head of the train was found a powerful locomotive, designed to run up and down this line at speed. D-1007 was a Class 52 diesel-hydraulic loco featuring two 1,350-horsepower Maybach engines, one powering each of its six-wheeled bogies. These locomotives were known as the Westerns, officially because each of their two-word names started with Western. 74 Westerns were built, but this one was Western Talisman. Diesel hydraulic means that the power of the engines was transferred to the bogies via a hydraulic transmission and not via an electrical generator and a traction motor as you find on a diesel electric loco. Designed to haul trains at 90 miles an hour, Westerns were a regular sight whipping up and down the Great Western Main Line, not least because of their fairly distinctive appearance. The front end was almost a slab, with a slight crease in the centre, sloping out towards the buffers a smaller mountain featuring a very large headcoat display. Above this were two large windows, filling the width of the loco, with a curved upper edge in line with the roof of the locomotive itself. It, it had a certain greenhouse quality about it. If you were to have a look at a picture, I think you'll see what I mean. The sides of the locomotive also turned inwards, with a distinctive sharp angle to the roof, and below the body sign were access doors for some equipment. And like I said, when I say they look distinctive, I mean it. If you do a quick Google search for a British Rail Class 52, I think you'll probably know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't got it in your head now already, you might recognise them. Moving back to the 19th of December, Western Talisman pulled slowly out of Paddington Station, its twin engines pushing out nearly 3,000 horsepower, drawing 11 carriages and 650 commuters out over the complex track work at the station approach. Driver Owen sat at the controls of Western Talisman as the locomotive started along the line. He dutifully increased the speed as they continued along, passing Old Oak Common Depot and Acton, continuing and continuing and powering up. Around ten minutes after departing, they approached Ealing Broadway Station, six miles from the platforms at Paddington. Owen believed his speed as he whipped through the platforms at Ealing to have been around about 70 miles an hour. He noticed nothing unusual, until he felt a lurch as they were passing under the bridge at the western end of the station. At that time, he assumed it was a bad rail joint, and as he should do, he decided to report it when they stopped at Reading. Drivers are trained to report rough rides when they experience it. Bumps and lurches could indicate problems, and quite often defects can manifest as smaller bumps, sways or knocks, and they might be noticeable to those who drove trains over the lines daily, before a maintenance crew might spot any visible issues on the ground. Because of this, crews have long been trained to report a rough ride so that it can be investigated in case of a fault. Driver Owen suspected that the lurch might have been the telltale sign of a bad rail joint, 
so he made the decision to report the sensation at his next station call, which was Reading. However, he wouldn't ever get the opportunity, as the locomotive passed over the next AWS ramp for the clear signal ahead, there was a sudden thumping from the rear end of the loco. It was felt by Owen as if the rear end of the 110-ton piece of machinery had bounced up in the air. The unusual bouncing sensation was all too quickly replaced by the fact that the loco rolled over onto its right-hand side and started to slide along the tracks until it came to a rest. Sadly, the damage and destruction didn't end with just the locomotive. Western Talisman lay on the gravel between the up and down main, obstructing both lines. Immediately behind it lay the leading carriage of the train. All of its wheels had become derailed, and its buffers had gotten locked with that of the loco. But, mercifully, it had remained upright with some damage. The second, however, had swung around to the right-hand side. It, too, had ended up on its right, obstructing all four of the lines at Ealing the windows now forming the ceiling and the floor. The next four coaches remained upright, but had zigzagged into a tight mass across all of the lines as well. The trailing ends of the third and fifth vehicles and the leading ends of the fourth and sixth had locked together. On the downside of the cutting, the vehicle ends had partially embedded into the earth. Despite the proven strength of the Mark I coaches used in this train, the forces involved in a 70 mile an hour crash meant that there was a considerable amount of serious body damage to the vehicles in this area. Indeed, it was here that most of the casualties occurred. This was only amplified when a cast steel bogey from the trailing end of the third coach was forced through the body side into the compartments at the leading end of the fourth the rear five coaches of the train remained upright, coupled together and more or less in line. They sustained only minor and superficial damage. Most of the energy of the train had been absorbed by the jackknifing of the front half. As the carriages of the train had become strewn over the bottom of the cutting, the wreckage had triggered the track circuits of all four lines. This caused a warning to sound in the signal box at Old Oak Common, and the supervisor responsible for the panel sorry, couldn't help notice that something had gone terribly wrong. When he saw the track circuit indications for all these lines in the area showing occupied with an associated red signal, he deduced that a derailment must have occurred. He contacted the emergency services immediately, ensured that the lines were fully protected, and that the rescue operation could begin in safety. The police arrived at 17.44, the 1st Ambulance at 1746, and the Fire Brigade at 1748. Additionally, a team of doctors and nurses from two local hospitals arrived by 25 past six as well. Sadly though, despite the best efforts of all of these people, the disaster at Ealing left 10 people dead and a further 94 injured. immediately clear that this accident would require a thorough investigation. Ten lives had been lost, and 94 other people severely injured. The human cost needed explaining. 
On top of this, you could add damage to the infrastructure. 580 feet of track of the down main line was destroyed, and 320 feet of the up main with it. All of the signalling and telecommunications cables on the downside of the line had been severed. And then again, you could add into this the fact that all four tracks of the Great Western Main Line were blocked. This caused extensive disruption to train services in the south and the west of the country. During the blockage, most mainline services were terminated at or started from Reading, and the shuttle service was run between Paddington and Reading by the way of a diversionary route. That was until the up and down relief lines were reopened to traffic the following evening. This got some traffic moving, with the relief lines able to accommodate a limited service. However, with Christmas on the way, the up and down main lines were not fully reopened to traffic until the evening of the 28th of December. An investigation headed up by the Railway Inspectorate began almost immediately, and as we have done in every episode, we'll start this section by listing the main questions which needed answering. Firstly, as it has been in every episode we've covered which has dealt with the derailment, what had led to the Oxford Express being derailed at 70 miles an hour, 10 minutes into its journey? Secondly, had any safety systems which could have prevented the accident failed? And thirdly, what could be done in the future to prevent the accident from happening again? discussing the first point, the reason the express derailed, we can start by going back to the criteria we've used in the past. The reasons derailments tend to occur are, as we've experienced before, are excessive curvature, broken rails, defective point work or an outside influence. Just to the west of Ealing Broadway Station, the Great Western Main Line features a series of curves, but they are very gentle, sweeping curves. In fact, you could say it was almost straight at the point the derailment occurred. This was reflected by the maximum permissible speed in the area. Here it was 90 miles an hour, indicative of the low risk posed by the track layout, amongst other factors. So that's out the equation. Inspections of the permanent way, the track itself after the accident, certainly yielded some evidence of damage to the track. As I said earlier, some 900 feet of track was needed replacing across two of the main lines. However, when the investigations were completed, investigators were able to ascertain that the extensive damage was the result of vehicles running derailed and pulling rails, sleepers and ballast out of their correct positions. The dynamic forces involved in the accident had spread and broken the rails, but this was an effect of the accident, not the cause of it. So that brings us round to the third reason, point work. Sometimes we can discount this straight away, where there isn't any point work or junctions in the vicinity of the accident, but this wasn't the case here. 210 yards in advance of where Western Talisman had came to arrest, you could find 807 Alpha points. Considering the proximity to the site of an accident, it's fairly guaranteed that these points would come under some scrutiny. 
Previously, we've talked of points and the fact that they can be divided into facing or trailing. As a quick refresh, if you imagine the letter Y, on a trailing point, you will be travelling from one of the upper arms onto the trunk. On facing points, you're facing the direction of the separating track, so from the trunk onto the arms. Facing points have an inherent risk, which trailing doesn't. If they're set incorrectly, a train can suddenly find itself veering off the expected course sharply, a surefire route to disaster. In fact, for many years, some companies only used trailing points wherever possible to mitigate the risk that I've just described. Over time, the safety of points has improved and designs developed to the point where their use became widespread, trailing and facing. 807 Alpha was the facing set of points at the start of a crossover from the down main, across the up main and onto the down relief line. If a weakness had been found in these designs that no one was aware of beforehand, it was crucial the investigators discovered it before a repeat occurrence elsewhere. The investigation learned that the section of line had been inspected by a patrol on the morning of the accident, with nothing untoward having been reported, no notable faults logged, and no reason to have concern over the integrity of 807 Alpha points. These points allow a train to change direction by virtue of switch rails. These are two movable pieces of track which, when operated by a motor or a lever, move from the normal position, where tracks and trains continue straight, to the reverse, where the rails are now diverting a train off onto the alternative route. When investigators assessed the points at Ealing, what they found gave them a fairly reasonable sign as to the instigating event of the accident. The switch rails of the crossover were found to sit in almost the reverse position, close enough that the wheels of any passing vehicle would have been interfered with by the switch rails, potentially diverted over onto the crossover, but almost certainly derailed. The Oxford Express was only ever booked to continue onto the main line, so this certainly didn't make sense when compared to the book timetable and the route of the train. Had the train intended to make this crossover to the relief lines, its speed would have needed to have been reduced to a safer level. The crew would have been aware and the corresponding signals would have needed to be set correctly. This would ensure that no conflicting movements would have taken place. By this point, it was clear that the derailment had been initiated by the facing points, having been set to this almost reverse position. What needed to be asked next was why had this condition existed? The signalling systems operated from Old Oak Common Signal Box a few miles away showed that the route had been set correctly and that the train had been running under clear signals. There was a conflict here. The orientation of the switchblades down on the ground didn't tally with the settings that the signaller had input. The reason for this was clear to the investigators on the ground. Attached to the switch rails via a system of rods was a point mortar. This mortar reacted on the instructions of the signaller in the box so far away and it moved the rails into the correct position. Not only that, as an extra safety system, the mortar also had a facing point lock. This was designed to hold the rails in the correct position and stop them moving against a train. So what had gone wrong? The smoking gun, as it were, was the condition of the point machine at the facing end of 807 alpha points. 
and the rods as well. It was clear that the mortar and rods, which were located on the side of the down main line, had been almost completely destroyed by an impact. This seemed to have been concentrated at the point where the rods emerged from the housing of the machine, two feet outside the rail and six inches below it. In the report, the damage to the point machine was described as simply extreme. Rods and slides which connected the switch rails to the mortar were buckled. Other rods connected to the track work were similarly ruined. In fact, these rods were bent to such an extent that the switchblades had been dragged across from the normal, almost into the reverse position. The force transmitted back into the main drive rod had broken the throw bar where it was connected to the mechanism of the machine, and the cast iron case was broken in several places, and its lid had been thrown clear of the box altogether. It was obvious at this point that the broken points mortar and the damaged rodding was to blame for the reverse setting of the points and the subsequent derailment. But, of course, to answer the question fully, we must step down yet another level and discuss what caused the damage itself. This damage was significant, and the impact which caused it must have been so as well. Had it been the result of an outside force, or had it too somehow occurred in the course of the accident? The clue to this comes from the testimony that the signaler Old Oak Common provided. At the same time as he noticed track circuit failures showing occupied by the wreckage, he also saw warning lights flash on the indicators for the points themselves. This means that the likelihood was, by far, that the damage was caused in the course of the accident as well. But how? Yet another level to drop down. The answer came in the testimony of an A.E. Holder, a traction inspector for British Rail. Immediately following the accident, he came down to the scene, and as he walked along the tracks, he came to the points and inspected their condition. He then walked a little further to where there was a policeman guarding a battered steel object. He didn't recognise it at the time, though he turned it over and he saw that it was blue. He then walked further to the locomotive. As I said earlier, Western Talisman lay on its right-hand side 200 yards ahead. The right-hand side was therefore heavily damaged, but the left lay almost pristine facing the night sky. When Holder reached the locomotive, he climbed atop it. When he did that, he noticed that the door to the fourth battery compartment on the predominantly undamaged left-hand side of the Class 52 was missing. Almost immediately, he realised where it was. At the feet of a policeman nearly 200 yards to the east. While circumstantial evidence at this point clearly pointed out that the most likely chain of events was that the door of the compartment caused the damage to the rodding in the mortar, it's never been the modus operandi of the inspectorate to settle for the circumstantial. Measurements were taken of the door, and where it could theoretically drop to if it weren't restrained by its hinged stays or locks, and this tallied almost perfectly with the impact point on the line-side equipment. This was further reinforced by samples of paint taken from the door and paint that had been transferred onto the point equipment. Microscopically compared, the paint was a match, showing the same several layers. All ambiguity was removed. The leading bogey of Western Talisman had passed over the points. 
The open battery door had destroyed the mortar, buckled the rods and dragged the switch rails across. The second bogey was then dramatically derailed by the points, along with the carriages that followed. And thus the chain of events which led to the deaths of ten had begun. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The second point that the investigation needed to answer was whether or not there were any failed safety systems and straight away we can say yes to one of them. Gauging. A few months back when we discussed the derailment at Morpeth, we talked about the loading gauges present on the UK rail network. In that case, it was to illustrate the compact nature of the sleeper stock. Not to repeat myself, but the brief version is that the loading gauge is the two-dimensional template which shows what space a train can fill based on landside obstacles. And it is, as we've said, restrictive. What you can't see, because this is the podcast, is that I am drawing the outline in the air of the loading gauge. Maybe I should look at doing this on video at some point. Now, if you were to mount a cutout of this shape on a piece of track, all stock for that particular line would need to be able to pass through it without contacting the template. In fact, in the days of old, a regular site in goods yards was a piece of kit not a million miles away from that. It was called a loading gauge. It was normally a post at the side of the track with an arm hanging out over it. From this arm hung an arch representative of the maximum loading gauge of the line. This kit was used far more frequently where freight was manually loaded onto wagons and in flatbeds, but by the 70s, most freight travelled on standardised wagons with a known gauge. And passenger stock, also built to a, pass- to a standardised gauge, as well as locomotives. In fact, every vehicle on the railway is classified with a route availability, a code which told BR and now Network Rail and Tox what lines they are able to operate on based on their profile. Vehicles built within the gauge should have been safe from impacting structures on the side of the line. And conversely, new kit that's put next to the line was purposefully placed outside of the gauge to keep it safe from trains. All of this means that no part of Western Talisman, or any of its 12 carriages, should have damaged or even come close to the points equipment at Ealing. But it clearly did. The next step is to understand how that took place. And to get into that one, we need to start thinking about the fact that the loading gauge only needs to be adhered to while the train is out and about. Many vehicles have access hatches and doors which sit outside of gauge when they're open. These hatches are needed to allow maintenance to take place, giving free access to areas that otherwise would have been challenging to get at. One such example of this would be the battery doors on the Class 52 Westerns. 
For preheating, starting and some operations of some auxiliaries, these locomotives had a large battery, which consisted of 16 separate units, all stored below the level of the frame in storage between the two sets of bogies. At each side of the loco were four hatches. Behind each of these was two of the battery units. The doors themselves opened downwards, hinged at the bottom, and when they were in the open position, they were held in place by two steel stays. This was so when the hatch was open, it formed a bit of a table for the units to be pulled out onto and worked on. And in this open configuration, the doors themselves sat about 12 inches outside of the loading gauge. It's not a problem in the workshop. It, it's very common in the workshop. So it was important, however, that they were kept shut when the vehicle was out and about on the network. For this reason, the £80 doors were secured by two locks at the upper edge. These were of a carriage key type that could be found almost everywhere on the network. A square peg placed in the hole on the outside of the door could rotate a bar on the inside, latching the door shut. And when I say everywhere on the network, I mean everywhere on the network. I've heard it's said um, by train crew that there are a couple of units knocking about out there that you could pretty much take apart with nothing but a carriage key. So this mechanical solution, it was simple, but it was effective. The only catch, terrible pun, was that it was difficult to tell from the outside whether or not the door was latched. So in addition, as a safety precaution, a pear-shaped piece of steel was mounted midway along the top edge of the door opening, so that when it was in its lowest position, where it should just fall to because of gravity, it will prevent the door falling open, even if it's unlocked. When this pear drop catch was installed, it was purely gravity operated and not secured. But after a few instances of it failing to work correctly, a threaded screw was added to the large end, so that when it was in the safe and dropped position, that screw could be tightened into a clearance hole on the door to hold it in place. In order to catch the eye, these pear drops were painted red. And all of this seemed to be a reasonable safety system, and it should prevent any accidents taking place. Yeah? Now that the involvement of the door was apparent, investigators needed to gain an understanding of the history of it. So they looked into the maintenance history of Western Talisman. What they found was that the locomotive had been serviced on Old Oak Common Depot the night preceding the accident, spending some time in the heavy maintenance shed, affectionately known as the factory by those who worked there. It was established that the locomotive batteries had been placed on charge, while other maintenance had been taking place on one of the two engines. The fitter responsible for putting the loco on charge recounted how he would have fixed the pair drop in the upper position to allow the doors to open. The screw that was used to hold it closed was also routinely used to hold it up, not keeping the door shut, just to make it easier to get down to the other two locks and open the door. He also recalled that when he left his shift at 6.30 in the morning, he recalled that one of the battery box doors on the Western Talisman was open. Sometime after 7am, a shift supervisor at the depot told how he had seen a set of ladders square onto the window in the side of the locomotive. He recalled seeing a fitter leaning into the window, but also saw that the door to the battery compartment was closed. 
In fact, with the ladder where it was, the door couldn't have been open. The key statement was from one of the labourers in the factory. At around 10am, two of them had started to clean Western Talisman. In order to do this, they used a wheeled scaffold, which was pushed along the side of the locomotive as they worked. He said that when they started to clean the side of the locomotive, there was one battery box door open, down the bottom end of the locomotive adjacent to some portable steps, and that so that they could move their scaffold along the side of the locomotive. Somebody came and pushed the door shut. The labourer said he did not shut it himself, and that the man who he did shut it, whom he did not recognise, was wearing blue overalls, and then he also removed the charging leads. The labourer made no reference at all as to whether the pear drop was touched. Prior to Talisman being released for duty, the battery attendant on shift was asked to box up the loco. This was the phrase that the depot staff used for closing all the doors to the battery box, locking them, making sure that the pair drop was in place correctly. When he arrived at Western Talisman, he found all the battery box doors closed and assumed that they had been properly secured. He didn't check, though, or check the pair drops. Now, it was never proved who had pushed the door shut, but the possibility is that it was just somebody who wasn't appreciative of the method of doing so safely, or who wasn't aware of the importance of the locks and the pair drop. Enter Driver Rowan. When he took Western Talisman from the depot, he had a number of responsibilities with regards to the preparation of the loco for service, and this was as was laid down in the driver's manual. The instructions set out a long list of items, each he was due to examine or check, the majority of which were in the driving cab or inside the engine compartment. There are only three specific items on the outside of the locomotive that the driver is required to check. And they're about air and brakes and things like that. None of them is the state of the battery compartment doors. Now, in the course of his preparation, in addition to those three specific points, he would walk around a loco, making a point of glancing alongside it and checking that the brakes, the brake blocks, the wheels, they're all in proper order. He said that he couldn't remember having seen the pair drop catches on the battery box doors in other than the correct position. During his preparation of number 1007 on the 19th, he noticed nothing whatsoever wrong with it. He then took an empty coaching stock service into Paddington and prepared Talisman for the Oxford Express. The report is clear in its conclusion. The immediate cause of this derailment is not in doubt. The rearmost battery box door on the near side of the locomotive, which was unlocked and had its pair drop safety catch secured in the raised position and not effective, fell open as a result of vibration some time after the train left Paddington. The last factor to understand here is specifically how the door contacted the motor. The door was supposed to be supported in a horizontal position by the two stays. It should never have been as low as the motor itself. To answer this question, the investigators retraced Talisman's journey from Paddington to Ealing. At Old Oak Common, an illuminated limit of shunt sign on the cess side of the down main line had some distinctive damage. It had been hit from the Paddington side at a point approximately 2 feet 11 inches outside the cess rail, 
and 12 inches above rail level. The position of the sign and the damage to it was measured in relation to where an open battery box door on the near side of a locomotive would be. The results were clear. This is what caused the damage. And it also placed the door as having opened between Paddington and Old Oak Common. The next indications were found at Acton, where a number of cast iron cable brackets on a retaining wall had been damaged, and along the platform face as well, they'd been broken off. Further similar damage was also observed at Ealing Broadway, where in addition there were marks of something having been in contact with the coping of the ramp at the east end of the down main platform, and of impacting heavily with the underside of the coping on the ramp at the west end of the platform, lifting and dislodging some of the coping stones. Yet again, a clear correspondence was matched between the location of the damage and where the door would have been at this location. The last object that the door hit prior to the points had been the coping stones on the ramp at Ealing Broadway. This not insubstantial contact forced the door downwards on its hinges and tore away the two hinged stairs. This allowed the door to drop into a position at which its edge was approximately two feet outside the running rail and six inches below the rail level. Exactly where the impact which caused the damage was found to the points mortar and rods was established to take in place. The last point of consideration for the investigators was how could this accident be prevented going forwards. Well, for a start, as soon as it was known that the battery box door had been involved, an emergency briefing was sent out to all depots who operated the Class 52 locomotives to pay close attention to the safe closure of these doors. This actually took place on the night of the accident itself. The immediate risk was reduced swiftly but there were other factors to consider, institutional ones. It had been clear during the course of the investigation that there was not an effective system in operation at Old Oak Common Depot to prevent a locomotive being released to traffic without a check being carried out by a responsible person to ensure that all roof hatches, body side doors, battery box doors, safety catches, etc, 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 were secure and properly fastened. It was not part of the driver's duties to check the security of the battery box doors during his preparation for locomotive, which he carried out outside the factory in the poor light of a December afternoon. Somebody else might have possibly noticed the pair drop catch in the raised position, drawn attention to it and prevented the accident, but the fact that driver Owen didn't does not make him in any way responsible for what ensued. He failed in no duty. The same could not really be said for the fitter who was asked to box up Western Talisman, but thought it looked okay, so didn't do anything in depth in terms of checking. If he'd simply walked over and actually checked, I wouldn't have much to record about a nondescript section of track in Western London where nothing really ever happened. Granted, he wasn't asked specifically to go and ensure that every single lock was locked and every single safety catch down and secure, but... I'm not sure he should have really needed that specific an instruction. What was clear was that this lack of accountability needed addressing, 
and the lead recommendation of the investigation was to make it part of an exam so that somebody has the responsibility for ensuring that every catch was secure and locked. By the time the report was issued, which was nine months after the accident, arrangements had already been made for the paperwork covering all repairs, which would require access to hatches to include reminders to secure them, as well as reminding that the form be signed by the tradesman and countersigned by his supervisor. The last recommendation of the report was around the pair drops themselves, and again by the time the report was issued, it had been resolved. These had all been retrospectively removed from the Western class. The modification that had put the screw in had turned out to have not been approved by senior designers, and it was this modification that had contributed to the uh, catch being held clear of the door on the 19th. In response to the accident, a new design entirely was produced, in which the safety catch was now replaced by a substantial steel bar six inches long. This bar was limited by stops welded to the door and body side from being raised more than just enough to allow the door to be opened or closed. No method for fixing the bar in any position was applied. This new design was painted yellow to give it the maximum contrast with the blue livery of the loco. This left a clearly visible group of short, vertical, bright yellow lines along the side of the locomotive. And if one of them wasn't angled correctly, it should be clearly visible to a fitter or a driver. By September 1974, this modification had been fitted to all the Class 52s that still remained in service, and additional training had been provided around the dangers of unapproved modification. The accident dealing in 1973 didn't necessarily lead to any wide-ranging and sweeping changes across the industry, not in the way that some other accidents have done in any case. This was primarily due to the nature of the way that it took place. It was a perfect example of how small errors and bad processes can lead to disaster. Whomever the mystery man had been who had closed the door at Old Oak Common was probably not supposed to have done so. Anybody who would have been supposed to, qualified to close these compartments up, would have known the importance of making sure that both locks were securely closed and that the pair drop should have been positioned correctly and secured in place. I don't believe for a second that there was any malicious intent. He must have seen the two cleaners, seen the door, put two and two together and known that that door probably needs closing for them to carry out their job. He probably thought, I'll be a good chap, I'll grab that for them. The knock-on being that nobody else who saw it assumed that it had been closed incorrectly. The sad bottom line is that this person had no right to meddle with that door. Even the cleaners themselves, who had probably seen them closed many times correctly, knew that if they needed that door closed, they needed to go to see the supervisor to arrange for a competent fitter to close them. This is what they would have had to do if the kind stranger hadn't assisted. You could lay a little blame at their feet, potentially. Did they know that the person that had closed the door wasn't competent to do it? Did they have any reason to? Doubt that. It's, like I said, it's a bit of a bad process. In any case, the rules existed. They were bent. Best intentions and not insurance against disaster. All of the biggest changes needed had already been implemented by the time the report was issued, 
and BR had made arrangements for someone specifically to have the responsibility for checking latches going forwards and the latches themselves were painted in a way so that they would be painfully obvious if they weren't positioned correctly. Now, these are things that have actually transferred across from BR to the franchised operators that replaced them in the 90s and to Network Rail, who now take up the rail, the tracks, the infrastructure side of it all. Most engineering procedures that take place on a depot will follow a set process, a process that will take you back to the point where a vehicle is fit for traffic. Even then, most operators use something like a fit for traffic checklist, which depot staff complete before the units can be released. A driver won't take his train off shed if that isn't there, or whatever the equivalent is at other companies. If somebody is putting their name down, signing something, making it clear that they have done it, the likelihood is that they've got more of a vested interest in making sure it actually is done and done properly. If there's a setting or a lever or a switch that needs to be set up in a certain way to be safe for traffic, nowadays you can be fairly confident it was somebody's explicit job to ensure that that switch or lever or setting was in the right way before that train left the depot. I mean, this principle even follows through to some of the challenges the industry has experienced over the last 12 months. I know that the company I work for, has implemented checks and balances to make sure that the additional cleaning and sanitation has been taking place and to ensure that it reaches standards. Cleaners complete a small sheet that's left in the cab so that train crew taking over the unit after a turnaround clean know that it has been sanitised since somebody else has sat a couple of hours in that chair. When we look at the response British Rail had to the issue of the pear drop catch, painting handles yellow, Painting handles yellow is something that never really went away as well. Most trains still have some degree of underflow cabinets or rooftop compartments, etc, etc, and they're normally secured by handles or grips or some sort of turning locking mechanism, and a great deal of these are still painted yellow. Some of the newest trains on the network, Hitachi's 80X class trains, are a prime example. These are known by various names across the network, LNER's Azumas, Hull Trains Paragons, GWR's IETs, Transpennan Express's Nova 1s. Whatever the name or the livery, one thing is a constant. At the bottom of the underfloor cabinets is a row of bright yellow handles, all horizontally orientated. You can't miss them. And if they're not horizontally orientated, it probably needs checking. It's a solution which is elegant in its simplicity. Just to draw this episode to a close, I want to say that some of the accidents we discuss on here have been the result of a critical, crucial error or the catastrophic failure of a specific component. But this wasn't the case here. I said this earlier, in the time I've spent researching this episode and writing it, the overarching feeling has been how easily avoidable this was. If the kind stranger hadn't have intervened and pushed the door shut, I thought he was doing somebody a favour, but it just went so wrong. If the fitter who'd asked to close it up to box up the locomotive, if he'd actually made sure that it was done properly and not looked right, assumes it's right 
or if the driver had just happened to notice out the corner of his eye as he was walking around the locomotive that that single pair drop catch wasn't the right way up. Any one of these factors is a tiny alteration to the actual narrative. But any one of them, let alone all, could have drastically changed the story and saved the lives of ten people. And we got through another one. Thank you for tuning in to episode 12. We really are starting to come along now, aren't we? Once again. Oh, God. Managed to get through the whole thing without knocking that over. Once again, please like, share and review. Come interact with us on social media, Twitter, Facebook. Just search for Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail. If you are interested in supporting us, please go on, have a look at Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash signals to danger. And if you want to look into getting hold of some railway merch, we do still have the shop page at signalstodanger.com. For episode notes, diagrams, maps, and for a list of all the music I'll be using in this episode, because I haven't quite decided yet, get yourself to that website as well. Until next time, travel safe. <laughs>